And as we're settling into this, this new fall season, we're finally getting settled into our new book study that we've been talking for a while now about wanting to preach through the book of Acts. Having finished, um, we finished Matthew up this summer, and so we've spent the last few weeks in reflection just on the person and the work of, of Christ and what it all means for us. And then last week, Mike brought us back around to the, the narrative again. Now, we didn't actually get into the book of Acts, but we got back to the narrative to try to fill in some of those details between the end of Matthew and the beginning of Acts. Namely, the fact that, you know, Mike really, he addressed the fact that the, the last time we saw Peter in Matthew, he was denying Jesus. And then he ran away to, to cry, to grieve his sin, what he'd done. But then when we pick up the story in Acts, we'll find Peter again as kind of the leader of the pack again, taking center stage and as, as the spokesperson. So we kind of had to fill in those gaps. So we read in out of uh, our passage in John last week, we saw Jesus not only restoring Peter's relationship to himself, but reinforcing what he had already established, which is Peter's role as the rock, the foundation of his church, and commissioning him to continue carrying out that ministry that Jesus had started, the work of caring for his sheep, feeding his sheep. When Jesus first called Simon Peter, he got his attention with a miraculous catch of fish. And he said, from now on, you're going to catch people instead of fish. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And then later, after Simon had spent a long time following Jesus, learning from him, he was the first recorded, and we read in Matthew, that he, prof- he professed the profound truth of who Jesus is, that he is the Son of God. And it's then that Jesus changes his name, or gives him the name uh, from Simon to Peter, or Kepha, which means rock. He says, you are the rock upon which I'll build. And then after Jesus gets arrested, he's, Jesus is facing execution, that's when Peter denies ever even knowing Jesus. And after Jesus died, before Peter knows that Jesus resurrected, we saw that he went back to fishing for fish, back to doing what he was doing instead of fishing for people, fishing for fish, before Jesus. And once again, Jesus got his attention with a miraculous catch of fish, almost the same miracle, only this time the nets didn't break. And this time, Jesus eats breakfast with them, and after they've had breakfast, they're full, they sit and talk together. That's when Jesus both restores Peter and recommissions him in the same conversation. He tells Peter to love him, to love, to show his love, to prove his love by doing what he's been called to do. Again, feeding the sheep. I can only imagine how difficult it might have been for someone, for Peter, to accept this calling into some form of leadership is clearly what Jesus is calling him into. Exactly what that looks like, he may have really no idea yet, but it's to become a voice in some way to speak on behalf of his teacher, who he had just denied even knowing a few days prior. And yet Jesus is still calling him to move on and move forward and do this. And he accepts it. And we'll see it as we begin in Acts. We don't find him kind of pouting or sulking, um, feeling sorry for himself, in self, wallowing in self-pity. When it's time to speak up and do something, um, which is classic Peter, he's the one standing up and, and doing something and getting, saying, you know, we, let's listen up. This is what happened. Here's what we need to do next. Let's get it done. And I think it's cool. Peter does play a pivotal role in the church, and we'll see that. But it's not like Acts becomes the Peter show or the Peter story. 
Um, and it's not even the Paul story. A lot of the, the later half of it is about Paul's travels, but it's the, the book and the story is much larger than Peter or Paul or Stephen or anyone else. It's the story of the ignition of the whole world with the truth of Christ. And that's what makes this book so cool. God, I just pray right now that you would, as we read about your work through your people, through your church, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would teach us to understand the truth of who you are and what you want to do in the world, who we are in you and how you want to use us in this world. Lord, we, I believe, who are in this room are here because we are seeking you and to love you better, to know you better, to worship you better. Jesus, I just pray that you would help us to understand your message that you left your apostles, that you trusted to them to pass down to us. Help us to learn from your first followers, from their, their joys, their struggles, their, their wisdom, and most of all, their testimony of, of you and of your work, your message. And in this chapter specifically, help us to be perhaps convicted and as well as encouraged by the faith of your disciples that we would be eager and willing to do your will, even in the wake of our own failures. And even when our view of the path ahead is very narrow and limited, help us to trust you and not grow weary or lazy uh, when we grow impatient, but uh, rather to, to seek you and to seek your glory and to seek your will in every situation, in every minute of every hour of, of our lives. And help us to learn how to do that a little bit better through our study in, in this book. Amen. Let's go ahead and dive now into Acts chapter 1. If you haven't found your place there already, go ahead and, and get there. I'm going to kind of cover really the whole first chapter today as an overview. I'll read, I'm going to have the NLT up on the screen, and I'll be reading out of a different translation. I'll be reading out of the LSB. I know that might be extra confusing. I thought it might be helpful, so you can let me know. Does it just make it worse, or is it helpful to have two? I don't know. I like having two. I like hearing and reading two different translations, but maybe that's just because I'm weird. All right, Acts chapter 1. The first account, O Theophilus, I composed, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over 40 days and speaking about the things concerning the kingdom of God. And gathering them together, he commanded them to not leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And I want to pause here because as I was comparing translations, I thought it was interesting. One translation stood out. The complete Jewish Bible used the phrase here to restore self-rule. To Israel. I just thought that was a slightly interesting, uh, interesting nuance um, that it, it brought out because it really reveals what they thought was the meaning of the kingdom. To them, that's what the kingdom meant, was restoring self-rule to Israel. They thought it meant independence from Rome still. 
of course, we'll see their focus shift very soon. It's not until after Pentecost that happens. But I mean, it's easy for us to look at that and say, oh, they had a little outburst of, of ignorance there. It's embarrassing. You know, but it's, it's a good reminder to check our own focus. What are we looking for or looking forward to? And are we focusing on people and stuff or things as narrow as, as politics and our policies rather than the people that they exist for? There's nothing wrong with being involved in politics and caring about policies. It's a good thing. But the people that they exist for is, and is what uh, our focus should be on. And the self-rule that the disciples wanted so badly is really what got Israel in, the tr- in trouble in the first place. Deciding to rule themselves and to take for themselves their own kings, human kings, instead of letting Yahweh be their only king and ruler, their only God. But at the same time, self-rule in some ways is a concept that is something Jesus does restore to all humans, that sense of um, autonomy, the complete freedom that can only be found by chaining oneself to Christ. There's a new and true type of freedom and self-rule that they just hadn't fully grasped yet, but they will. Anyway, Jesus doesn't get quite into all that. He essentially says, uh, never mind that. <laughs> we'll, we'll get back to that. Here's what you need to know. Here's what is going to happen. He continues in, in verse 7. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has set by his own authority. There is, Israel is going to come into the picture in Revelation, but this isn't the time for all that. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the end of the earth. This is where Jesus, and this is all review I know of Matthew, but Jesus is expanding their perspective, their scope of the mission. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received them out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking toward heaven? This is Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, This Jesus will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. I think I probably would have been standing there staring for a while too. It doesn't say how long they were standing there staring, just kind of waiting to see. These guys had to come and say, okay, enough, move on. Sometimes we have to be snapped out of it and be told to move on. They did. They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. They went down from the mountain is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. So that's about a half mile, three quarters mile. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas. Actually, they have this list here. Oh, <laughs> it's okay, he did. I have a list of all the, the, uh, the names here in verse 13. It lists them in the upper room. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. Now, if it wasn't obvious, I numbered them there. We're missing one. Judas, of course. And this upper room could very well be the same one they had been in celebrating Passover. It wasn't that long ago. They could have moved to a different one. Either way, it was likely near the temple. It was still in Jerusalem somewhere. And it's also likely, remember, 
they could be, at least partially, some of them, in hiding, trying to lay low, trying to avoid the authorities, since their leader, their ringleader, as some might have seen him, um, was just executed for essentially treason. He was found innocent, but that's the scandal surrounding him. All right, let's keep reading verse uh, 14. These all, with one accord, were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the brothers. A crowd of about 120 persons was there together and said, Men, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his unrighteousness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language that field was called Hakel Dama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his residence be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. I just got to say, the fact that Peter connected that psalms to this event shows a pretty deep saturation of his knowledge for the Torah. I'm just going to throw that out there. Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justus, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. So Matthias becomes the twelfth apostle. And we're going to talk about this situation and the, how they handled it, but first I just want to back up to the couple verses and the first couple verses um, and talk about the, the background of this book a little bit. So right away, I have this cool graphic for that. I'll bring that back up at the end. Um, the first verse, right away, we have this clue that we're actually jumping in kind of halfway, partway in the middle of a series, in the middle of someone else's story. We've been reading, uh, it's been a few weeks now, but we read through Matthew's account of Jesus very thoroughly. (laughs) And that was one person's version of of the story, their perspective on what happened. Luke, the author of Acts, uh, has a slightly different perspective. And so we're jumping into his version of the story. It's very similar, and all the, you know, they corroborate each other. But we have to acknowledge that we're kind of jumping in halfway in between. Volume 2, part 2. Verse 1 is in the first person. He's addressing it to a specific person. We'll talk about Theophilus a little bit. Um, And it references his previous work, the book of Luke. This is a follow-up to the book of Luke. So Luke, the author, there are a few things of note that we we know about Luke simply by cross-referencing other passages that refer to him. Uh, We know Paul knew him. He was a friend of Paul. He's referred to Paul as the beloved physician in Colossians 4.14. 
And then later in the book of Acts, we'll see Luke as the narrator in the per- first person. He'll be talking about, we did this, we did that, we went there and here. Um, he went with Paul and, and others on their journey. So by each other's testimonies, they were contemporaries, they corroborated each other, they explicitly corroborate, you didn't reference each other. And this other book that we know he, he wrote, The Gospel According to Look, based on his, that writing with Acts, you look at the, all of his writing together, we can tell that his writing, writing is something that he was really good at. He was skilled, he was trained in this, this skill. Like if out of 100 people or out of you know, anyone in this room, you, were, you had to choose someone to write down everything that's happened the last couple years, he was the guy that you wanted to do it. And it's even likely that someone was helping fund him to, to make this happen. Because it did take resources and time to, to make it happen. And God had clearly been equipping him throughout his life for, for this role in his education. Even as a Gentile, he was being prepared for this. Uh, here's a little excerpt about him. I don't have it uh, up on the screen. but This is from the Reformation Study Bible. I just really liked how they put this. The author was an educated Gentile, as attested by the style and the high level of Greek used in Luke and Acts. His Greek is sometimes fully classical, like at the beginning of Luke. The author's methodical, uh, methodical approach to writing and his interest in research reveal an educated, highly trained man. Luke's identity as a Gentile may be inferred from the fact that his name appears after those whom Paul calls the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. Paul identified him as a Gentile. That Luke was a physician means that he was necessarily highly educated. You actually find medical terminology in both Luke and Acts, which isn't proof that he was a physician, but it just shows, you might notice that he pays attention, uh, more attention maybe to some other authors, to things like diseases and, and things, other medical matters to do with the human body. And I think the beginning of Acts is somewhat abrupt. There's not much of an introduction because it does pick right up where the gospel of uh, his gospel account leaves off. So I want to just go back and look first at how Luke begins. This is the opening uh, verse of Luke. Many people have undertaken to compile an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in orderly sequence, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty about the things you have been taught. So I'd say this introduction still applies when we get to Acts. This is still his main focus and goal, is to compile, carefully compile accurately what happened into a narrative that helps to teach and inform those he's writing to. Of course, in Luke, from there, it goes into the whole story of Jesus from before he was even born to his death and burial and resurrection and then ends in chapter 24 with this, um, leading them out as far as Bethany and lifting up both hands, he blessed them. And it happened that while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And there, they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So it kind of skips to the end, and you can see, though, how Acts comes in and overlaps. Those la- that last kind of paragraph of Luke is almost uh, verbatim the, si- the first paragraph of Acts. So overlaps, and the second book is going to carry the narrative forward, showing what Jesus continued to do 
and teach after his ascension to heaven. This Theophilus guy to whom both of these volumes are addressed, both um, Acts and Luke, we don't really know much about him. The assumption is he was a real person, a, a, an actual person, but the word Theophilus in Greek just means friend of God. And we can't really find any specific records of a person that has that exact name. Um, so because it's difficult to pinpoint exactly who that is, doesn't mean it, that wasn't who their name was, but there, is, there are people who wonder maybe he was, you know, masking someone's real name to protect their identity from the authorities and using kind of a generic name like Theophilus, friend of God, is a pretty clever way to come up with a pseudonym. If it was a pseudonym, I think it's, it's pretty clever. Could have just been someone's name. It could be even that, you know, the, this work was addressed to this specific person, Theophilus, right? It was commissioned, even if it was commissioned by one person, it's clearly composed and compiled for the sake of many, not just this one person. It's intended for an audience of people who are either already followers of Jesus or at least interested enough to learn more about the story and about what he has been doing. After all, if you are reading Acts, I guess the assumption is you've already read Luke, part one, and you're interested enough to keep reading more. And of course, if you're here with us today, I I hope it's because you're either already a follower of Jesus and you want to be with other people who are following him or you're interested in learning more about following Jesus and what it looks like. So if either of those describe you, then the book of Acts is a good book for you. I hope that's all of us. So I'm going to spend a few minutes now um, just talking about the big picture overview of structure. Now, some of the books that we go through are really complicated, and they have like really intricate structures. Even Matthew, the, the structure of Matthew is really cool, and we kind of go back, went back to that a lot to show how things were structured. Acts is a little more straightforward and simple, but it does have an outline that corresponds to its message. So you have Jesus' commission to go to Jerusalem and the other regions surrounding Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And you find, as you read through the book of Acts, it'll follow that same basic structure, starting in Jerusalem and what God does there through the apostles and then following them as they branch out. So it has kind of those three main parts. It's a, it covers approximately those first three decades, about 30 years of the church as it took shape and grew um, and in particular, it focuses in on the role that the apostles played in carrying those, the flaming embers that Christ left throughout the rest of the world, from the temple and beyond. And even in the speeches we read throughout, we'll, we will read speeches from Peter and Stephen and James and Paul, and they, all, um, they address a variety of different cultural contexts. It has a variety of different literary styles within it. And these are just little uh, examples of nuances, uh, which if you read through commentaries of, of Luke and Acts, scholars will all attest to the quality and the richness of Luke and Acts and his writing. Now, the very last word of Acts, the closing word in the Greek text, is the word unhindered or without hindrance. And that's the one key, or it's one key to uh, the meaning of the book. As we'll see throughout the book, one core message of 
Acts is that God's word, his message, and the work of, that Jesus started cannot be chained, even if his messengers are for a time. And Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2.9, And because I preach this good news, I am suffering <laughs> and have been chained like a criminal. But the word of God cannot be chained. Or in your translation, you might say, is not bound or has not been bound. It's boundless. In fact, Paul writes similarly in Philippians about how his chains actually served not to diminish the effect of the gospel, but actually intensify it. He says in Philippians 1.12, I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I am in chains because of Christ. And because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. How cool is that? God was actually allowing him to see what was happening. That doesn't always happen. We don't always see what's happening and the, the fruits of our suffering. But Paul was able to, to see and testify uh, for all of us. Now, all of this big picture stuff is, is great. Uh, the, you know, thinking of Acts being the Spirit of God carrying his message to the whole world. That's, that's awesome. It's exciting. I'm pumped to get into this book. But none of that is happening in chapter 1, is it? <laughs> So let's talk a minute about their immediate situation here in chapter 1. Pentecost hasn't happened yet. Nothing has happened yet, really, except that Jesus left. He told them to go, to make disciples, but not yet. <laughs> he said, wait. Wait in Jerusalem. They have a purpose and a mission, but they're told to wait. That suspense is just insane. I can't imagine we reading it, and especially if you have read it at all before, kind of know anything about this story, you know the message is about to spread. We know that this is a fulfillment of God's promise to David and Abraham, to Adam, the prophecies of the Messiah. It's all about to you know, explode. And even if you don't know anything about the Bible, you kind of must be aware that for thousands of years there's this growing number of people all over the world claiming to follow Jesus for some reason or another. For some reason, people continue to choose to follow him and continue to testify that he is the Savior of the world. But before all the intensity of chapter 2, before the spiritual high, these faithful few are forced to slow down and to wait. I know I struggle with waiting. I think that's a natural struggle. We all have um, a struggle with waiting sometimes, just by nature. Maybe some of us, are, by nature, find waiting a little easier than others. I know I find it difficult. <laughs> I get impatient very easily. I would have had a really hard time in their situation. In the absence of Jesus's physical presence, though, and even prior to receiving the Spirit, it's not that the Spirit wasn't at work, it's that they haven't had this shift in their relationship to the Spirit, they continue to live life and handle the logistics of their life, making necessary decisions through prayer, praying to God, and trusting in His sovereignty. 
And in some ways, maybe it was actually natural for them to go back to trusting God without having any sort of clear and present voice with them constantly. In some ways, that's more comfortable. You can just go back to normal life, right? For Jewish followers, that's really what their life was like before Jesus, was trusting, trusting God without that clear revelation and presence like that the Israel had with Moses and the fire and the smoke. And Jesus kind of brings that back, and then the Spirit is going to come and bring all of that back. But they're in this, this um, limbo period in, in between. It doesn't mean God's not there. It doesn't mean God's not in control or that God doesn't care about them. But it does mean that they're left with some freedom <laughs> with what to do with that time. And that in itself, I think, is kind of cool and speaks to how God wants to interact with humans. It ought to be our desire and our intention to fill every conscious moment completely surrendered to God's will. And God wants to immerse our every crevice of our being to possess us and immerse us to baptize us he wants to speak through us to work through us through us and sometimes that means he actually loves to watch us make our own decisions and to be creative to to make things and that's what he made us for to make decisions to create alongside him like his dance part, partner, he, he loves to watch us coming up with our own moves as long as we're still following his lead. Does that make sense, that analogy of he gives us freedom as long as we're still following him? Exercising our own will that he's given us, that's a beautiful and creative thing, but only when we've trained our ears to play our instruments to the key, to the rhythm of the great conductor. That's when we can start to improvise a little bit. Sometimes, though, it's, it's really challenging to be at peace about a decision. Because none of us are re- really ever to the point where we fully arrived. We're perfectly, fully saturated in God's will every moment and every second of the day, right? Maybe this time we spend in, as gathered as a church family, I was talking to Ellie, like that might be the closest we come to like a full hour of just, you know, not having a sinful thought because it's just so much easier to do it in the presence of God's family. And that's a beautiful thing. But... I'm getting distracted. (laughs) Sometimes it's really challenging to be at peace about a decision because we're so flawed. And when there's no clear directive from God, and this decision could make a significant impact on, you know, our lives or someone else's life one way or another, and that can be scary. But how the disciples responded is, you know, it's unique to their specific situation and context. No one else is ever going to have to choose a 12th apostle, right? But... At the same time, there's still wisdom to be found in this kind of preparation that they were making before the Pentecost, what happened at Pentecost. Um, Number one, they were devoted to prayer. They didn't need Jesus standing there with a bullhorn every five minutes, remember them, hey, don't forget to pray, don't forget to pray, don't forget to pray. They just, they knew to pray. It was part of the model that Jesus had set for them was this pattern of a lifestyle of prayer. They didn't need a reminder that God is real and that they should be seeking him always. They'd spent enough time with him. And many of them, if not most of them, had spent enough time studying Torah. Those who had studied were there helping the others learn, bringing them up to speed to know what to do even after Jesus left, before they were sent out, even in this mundane, boring, suspenseful 
waiting period. And number two, they also followed the, the logical leadership and reasoning of Peter. You know, they didn't try to reinvent the wheel. Um, he came up with an approach that made sense to narrow down the candidates. They were able to nominate two people from that. And number three, after everything else had been done, they left it in God's hands. Ultimately, the disciples, they narrowed it down to what seemed like good, two good choices on paper, if you will. No other criteria upon which really to make the selection other than personal bias, really. So they cast lots. Essentially, what that means is they, they tossed a coin or rolled some um, dice. And today, we'll, we'll maybe flip a coin as a measure of fairness, when we want to leave something up to chance, right? To, uh, rather than risking some kind of our own bias being influence, an influence of the decision. So, for example, to settle maybe a, pedal, a petty argument, you might flip a coin. All right, whoever, you know, heads or tails, call it, you win. Um, or, you know, to determine who gets the ball first in overtime in a sports game. That can be a pretty major decision, right? But it's, it's kind of the only way we make it fair, right? That's how we view flipping the coin. It's kind of leaving it. The disciples' perspective on this would have been a little bit different. To leave a decision like this to the casting of lots was actually to acknowledge God's sovereignty, even over chance or luck or randomness. Because in reality, all of these things are secondary to God's will. So in the Old Testament, you know, such practices were actually established as ways to show submission to God's will rather than asserting human authority. So rather than making the decision myself between these two people, if there's no you know, logical reason other than my own bias, we'll leave it up to God. And this was a way of them saying, you know what, God, we're going to leave it up to your will rather than my will. We'll flip a coin for it. That's sort of the, the concept. Proverbs 16 talks about this and puts it pretty simply. I have a couple excerpts here, 16.9 and 16.33. Pretty much those two verses say it all. That's all you really need to know. Um, but I would like to read through the greater context of it because it's a wonderful Proverbs. And really the whole message of it is this message. It starts off, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from Yahweh. All the ways of a man are pure in his own sight, but Yahweh weighs the motives. Commit your works to Yahweh and your plans will be established. Yahweh has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to Yahweh. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. By loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of Yahweh, one turns away from evil. When a man's ways are pleasing to Yahweh, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Better is a little with righteousness than great produce with injustice. The heart of a man plans his way, but Yahweh directs his steps. A divine decision is in the lips of the king. His mouth should not err in judgment. A just balance and scales belong to Yahweh. All the weights of the bag are his work. It is an abomination for kings to commit wickedness, for in righteousness a throne is established. Righteous lips are the delight of kings, and he who speaks uprightly is loved. The wrath of a king is like messengers of death, but a wise man will atone for it. In the light of a king's face is life, and his favor is like a cloud with a late rain. 
How much better is it to acquire wisdom than fine gold, and to acquire understanding is to be chosen above silver? The highway of the upright is to turn away from evil. He who guards his way keeps his soul. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before stumbling. It is better to be humble in spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. He who considers the word will find good, and how blessed is he who trusts in Yahweh. The wise in heart will be called understanding, and sweetness of lips increases learning. Insight is a fountain of life to one who has it, but the discipline of ignorant fools is folly. The heart of the wise gives insight to his mouth and increases learning to his lips. Pleasant words are a honeycomb and sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. A worker's appetite works for him, for his mouth urges him on. A vile man digs up evil, and the words on his lips are like scorching fire. A perverse man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close companions. A man of violence entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that is not good. He who winks his eyes does so to devise perverse things. He who compresses his lips brings evil to pass. Gray hair is a crown of beauty. It is found in the way of righteousness. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his own spirit than he who captures a city. And then it ends finally with the same concept as it started with. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every judgment is from Yahweh. Or we may throw the dice, but the Lord determines how they fall. That's how the NLT puts it. And that perspective that the, the Lord determines how the dice fall, or that luck doesn't truly exist, or at least that Yahweh, that is God even over luck. It's not that God necessarily intervenes right, to ensure the outcome of card games and overtime and sporting events, right? But it, is, it does mean that God is certainly in control regardless of the outcome of sporting events, even when the wrong team wins. And e even if the fate of the world were to rest on an impossibly improbable event, kind of like a virgin giving birth to a godchild in a manger in Bethlehem, he's going to make that happen. So when the disciples cast the lot, they're doing it prayerfully, saying, God, let this be in your hands. We know it's in your hands. At that time, it was still a normative practice to do this, to discern God's will based on Leviticus, the Levitical rules. Normative practice for discerning God's will has changed. We don't really do this anymore. But God's sovereignty over the universe has not changed. So I'm not really encouraging the use of coin tosses or rolling dice to discern the will of God. It's kind of a relic of their Old Testament culture and, and symbols. We don't really see them doing or uh, resorting to such methods after chapter 2. I'll point that out, too. After they are being led daily by the Spirit, they don't have to do this kind of thing. But learning to trust God after we've done everything else that's in our hands to do, that is your prayer and being saturated in God's Word, being surrounded by His people, being sensitive to His voice and the leading of the Spirit, seeking wise and trusted counsel from each other, we must also learn to trust God even with the coin toss. 
the coin tosses of life that may be much more serious than um, a football game. It's a good thing to practice, and it's a difficult thing to practice. I ran across a quote from Acts that summarizes it very succinctly, and I, I like it. The book of Acts is more than a first century church history. It is that. It's more than that. It is a narrative about the triune God on an unstoppable mission to the ends of the earth. That's a pretty accurate and epic way to put it, I think. Yes, it's a historical narrative. It covers some history. And it is a very exciting, interesting story. But more than that, it's the victory lap of the gospel. And it proves its unstoppable fruitness in the world. It's unstoppable because it's true and it hasn't stopped. We're living the fruits of it today, here, right now. When we encounter the truth, it changes us. Lord, I pray that as we spend time studying this book, that it will be a transformative encounter with truth, that you will teach us and equip us and empower us, embolden us as your people to do your work. Let us be inspired and convicted and encouraged by what your people have done. Let us continue doing it. In Jesus' name, amen.